everyone. Welcome to this event, looking at the future of work and how to ensure quality jobs. Thank you for taking some time in your day to be a part of this important conversation. And before launching into that conversation, we're going to hear from the executive producer of the series, which starts airing tonight on PBS stations across the country. Hi, I'm Denise Diani, series creator and the executive producer. Hi, I'm Denise Diani, series creator and the executive producer of PBS's Future of Work initiative. We're delighted to have you join this important conversation about building an economy based on quality jobs. And we're grateful to our co-hosts at the Aspen Institute's Economic Opportunities Program for helping to convene this impressive group of experts. The future of work, in fact, is the future of all Americans. It's about their financial stability, their past opportunity, their drive to entrepreneurship, their well-being, and of course, the well-being of their families. So this series starts with their personal stories and looks then at how trends in our economy and our workforce are changing the game for workers at all stages of their careers. Please enjoy this trailer for our three-part documentary series. The first hour airs tonight on PBS, followed by hour two on September 8th and hour three on September 15th, all at 10 p.m. Eastern and also streaming on pbs.org. Thank you. Technology is moving faster than our brains can capture. Future-proofing is really what education was always supposed to be. The deal has changed. Self-esteem, self-worth, Work is a source of dignity. The human job is something that's evolving over time. Don't listen to your parents. What has worked for them probably won't work for you. A sweeping series on the future of work. Although technology will play an increasingly important role in the future of work, workers people are still the heart of work and of jobs. And that's what we're here to talk about today, ensuring that the jobs of the future not only exist, but exist to provide decent working conditions for the millions of workers who hold them. Uh, so we'll, we'll launch into a conversation interspersed with some, some clips from the documentary series uh, to spark a conversation about how to make sure that the jobs of the future are good jobs. And we are lucky, lucky, lucky to be joined by a panel of experts across sectors to speak to their views, experiences, on, and perspectives on ensuring good jobs. Uh, so we are joined by uh, Nafisa Ula, Organizing Director for Jobs with Justice, Rachel Korberg, Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Families and Workers Fund, uh, Dr. Alex Kammerdell, Director of Workforce Policy for the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, and Rick Plimpton, the CEO of Optimax Systems. Uh, so we'll be lucky, lucky to hear from everyone, hear ideas, hear perspectives, and hopefully by the end of the hour, feel equipped in some capacity to do something to ensure quality jobs for the future of work. To get things started, we're going to watch a short segment from tonight's documentary uh, that is a, a short scene uh, showing Chris Francis, uh, a worker in rural Le Grand, Oregon, uh, 
tells a bit about his life and livelihood, uh, and, and ends with a few insights from Opportunity at Work CEO Byron Auguste. Uh, as we, we watch this, we can think about you know, what we see about the quality of jobs and the trends, how jobs are, are going, uh, and then we'll, we'll open it up to a conversation with our panelists. So enjoy this clip. In 2018, Future of Work profiled an RVer when he worked his seasonal gig at an Amazon fulfillment center in Kentucky. Chris Francis lost his white-collar career in the Great Recession of 2008, and he's been piecing together a livelihood ever since. He's part of a growing movement of nomadic workers. They live in their RVs full-time and travel the country going from job to job. Today, Francis is in Oregon. Okay, so we've got two nights with the discounted rate will be $94.50. And let me get my reader here. I'm park hosting at Grand Hot Springs RV Resort in La Grande, Oregon, doing duties all the way from checking people in, making reservations, all the way to working maintenance. Press and pull. Okay. Should start. Lawn mowing picking up trash, making sure things are clean, making sure the guests are okay. You gotta enjoy talking to people because you talk to people a lot every day. These paw prints are where we have trash bags and a trash can for the dogs. This is not how Chris Francis envisioned his later years. The American dream, I, I think, has morphed. The American dream used to be you go to work for companies or you go to work for yourself. You got this house, you, you got the chance to go on vacations, you retired. But people are realizing that dream, that changed a long time ago. We see that with people coming through all the time because they're traveling in RVs or they're living in an RV, but yet they are doing work wherever. Y'all enjoy your stay. So there we saw a story of one person who's faced declining and deteriorating job conditions uh, over, over their career. Uh, and so I'd like to, to ask our panelists, you know, does this resonate with experiences that, that you've heard and what you've seen? You know, have you witnessed a, a decline in job quality over the past decade or so? Uh, and, and in what ways? Um, so I would, I would turn it over to Rachel to get us started. Thanks so much. So I'm Rachel Korberg, Executive Director of the Families and Workers Fund. And this story about job quality very much resonates with us. Um, for us at the Families and Workers Fund, job quality means that no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you are working, it's not enough to result in the basics of a decent, solid, stable, middle-class life. A lot of this is about pay, right? So the, the federal government has set a national poverty line, and we have said that below this line, we do not think you are earning enough money to be able to afford the basics, to live a healthy and stable life. And yet we have a federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour that for a family of two actually puts you below the poverty line. 
right? That's madness. Like, why are we doing this to people? Why are we creating a policy situation where people are essentially forced into poverty, even though they're working full time? Uh, so we need to raise the minimum wage, number one. But it's not only about pay. That's not the only aspect of job quality. And I think we heard that in the clip you just played from the PBS documentary. It's also about benefits. It's also about health and safety. It's also about having voice and the ability to create a safe and successful working environment. And it's about equity. Um, it's about dealing with these persistent racial and gender opportunity and pay gaps in the workplace. Thank you. Uh, and I'm hoping, Alex, that you could come in next and, and share some of your perspectives, especially from the, the economic research that you and others at the Joint Center have done. Sure, <clears throat> sure. Thank you. And um, again, I'm Alex. I'm with the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. Uh, we are also known as America's Black Think Tank. So we have a very uh, narrow but important interest in advancing the overall well-being and prosperity of uh, this nation's black communities. And I think in recent years, we've shifted um, our understanding of the future of work to be pretty focused on the future of black workers. Um, and reason being that we will not have a very prosperous uh, labor force and economy unless uh, we have cared for and corrected a lot of the policies and laws and injustices that have been inflicted upon our, our Black communities uh, since 1619. So um, that is where our focus has been and where it will continue to be. And we certainly uh, agree that job quality has eroded over time. I think uh, just in the last year, a study found that job quality had been deteriorating pretty quickly over the course of the pandemic uh, for our workers. But in reality, uh, workers of color, particularly women of color, especially our Black workers, have been dealing with deteriorating, deteriorating job quality um, since uh, we were uh, given access to um, the proverbial free market economy as employees, uh, as business owners, and the like. Um, so I'm happy to share, you know, my perspectives around, you know, where we've been historically that have catapulted us into um, March 2020, uh, a, a series of, of policy choices in um, employer practices have uh, contributed to a job quality um, climate and environment that made the pandemic's uh, effects uh, quite grueling for, um, for Black workers, uh, more so than, than others in, in select industries as well. So. So yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it there and just want to, you know, also, you know, say plus, plus, plus to the specific policy uh, challenges that uh, Rachel mentioned as well. Great. Thank you. There's a, a lot to get into a lot to get into there that we'll uh, dive dive more into in the, the next set of questions. So so thanks for that. Uh, and Nafisa, I'll hand it over to you. Well, first, it's just such an honor to be here with such cool, intelligent, awesome people working to make things a little bit better for working people. So thank you for having me. Um, so I, I'm the organizing director at Jobs with Justice, and we're a national network of organizations, um, of local coalitions, actually, who do 
economic justice work. And those coalitions are partnerships between unions, community organizations, student organizations, climate justice organizations. And so we see on a day-to-day -day basis how job quality has declined and more specifically how the decline in unionization has contributed to the decline in job quality. And so I'll just say that there, for me, there are really three key ways job quality has declined just in my lifetime. And I'm not that old. Um, so just in my lifetime, I can see that job quality has declined because of the wage stagnation that Rachel mentioned. So I won't go into more detail about that. But at the same time as wage stagnation, productivity is climbing, wealth is increasing in the top 1%, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not that there isn't money to keep the wage stagnant. It's that the wages are suppressed and everything else is going up, including the cost of living. The other one is safety and health that really concerns me, especially in the pandemic. When I was growing up it, and when I entered the labor movement, it was unusual if you got hurt at work. I'm not saying it didn't happen. But if it happened, people would take action. It would be really significant and unusual. And today you can't really go a day without hearing about an agricultural worker losing consciousness, harvesting our, the food that we eat, or an Amazon warehouse worker being injured, or a meat processing worker being hurt by the machinery on the line because of line speeds. This is a really, really significant decline in job quality and that we've seen just in the past 30, maybe 40 years. And then lastly, Shelly, you're an expert about this, is the gigification of the economy, which, you know, we've heard this and you saw it in the video. There was a time when, you know, my parents had one job for their whole career. Now you can't only not have one job for your whole career. In any given moment, you may be working three or four jobs to piece together a living um, from various gigs. So these are just some of the ways that we're seeing the decline in job quality um, across the country uh, from Jobs with Justice's lens. Uh, thank you for, for sharing those those perspectives and, and ideas. And, and Rick, you'll be going last and you come from a bit of a different perspective. You know, the other panelists have shared some of the, the challenges that we face, you know, what, what's going wrong. Um, and you're in a position where you are leading a business uh, who has tried to do some things right um, and tried to sort of buck this trend of declining job quality. Uh, so I'm hoping that you can speak a bit uh, by means of intro about some of those, those strategies, but also speak to some of the pressures that, that businesses have faced over the last couple of decades. Yeah, thank you. So Optimax is a manufacturer of precision optics for research and industry. And just to give you an idea, we're a key supplier to NASA. So we have optics on each of the Mars rovers that have that have gone up there and are exploring the planet surface. Um, when I think about the last three decades, Optimax just turned 30 years old. Technology has shifted how business is done. And there's three primary ways that some companies are adapting and doing well at uh, creating value and sharing that value with their workforce. And I'll just give you a quick rundown of those. First of all, three years ago or 30 years ago, most businesses did uh, only, only worked with organizations in their region. But in the 90s, when the Internet came online, it became possible to produce goods and services and supply them at a global level, uh, you know, all across the nation or around the world. And so that changed, that fundamentally changed how we, who we're competing with. 
another way that business has changed is many things used to be done manually and through technology advances. Now there's a lot of automation, both in the office and out on the production floor. And so this fundamentally changes how work is done. And then the third, and probably the, one of the most important ways is information used to be rolled up to management, you know, throughout the, the organization, data was collected and put into reports and rolled up to management. Management would make decisions and then those decisions would get worked down through the organization in terms of how work got done. Today with technology, we can have real-time updating and roll out information to the workforce in a way that it empowers the workforce to show up and do whatever they know needs to get done to create value for their customers. And this is something that we've been doing at Optimax, trying to leverage technology to empower our workers. And that it also creates an opportunity to flatten our organizational structure so that we can have more organic leadership as opposed to top-down leadership. And at Optimax, our mission statement is very simply enabling customer success and employee prosperity. So we have a fundamental belief, if we can help our customers be successful, they'll pay us fairly for the work that we do and we share that wealth with our employees. In fact, each month we close the books, figure out if we made profit, and we take 25% of that profit and share it with our workforce. So, I, and there's a lot of details in that, but it, I, I think that what one of the way we're sharing the wealth with our workforce is an evolution of capitalism, where the, the wealth created by an organization should be shared with the workers that are there. And it's a way that we can lift up the middle class and, and really eventually everyone in, in society and strengthen communities all across the nation. Thanks. Thank you. What I, what I appreciate about that framing, Rick, is that you, you lay out some of these challenges, these pressures that, that business and business leaders face. And then you highlight that what to do about them is a choice. And there's choices that lead to good jobs with pathways to opportunity. And there's choices that lead on the other hand to some real challenges and some real declines in job quality that some of the other panelists spoke to. Uh, so I'd like to think just a little bit as sort of an open question, what are some of the, the forces that have brought us here? You know, why, why did we end up in a place where there aren't enough good jobs, where too many people are working in minimum wage or sub-minimum wage jobs or piecing together different sorts of low-wage gig work? Now, what, how, how did we get here? It's an easy question if anybody wants to, to jump in. I'm wondering, Nafisa, if you could share a little bit more. You mentioned this earlier, but share a bit about uh, the decline in, in unionization and decline in, in worker power and the, the balance of power between workers and businesses. Sure. I wasn't sure if the open question was actually a Nafisa question or not. Um... So yeah, I think that there is a direct correlation and it, it's proven. There's a direct correlation between the decline in how many people have access to, to a union and what percentage of those, you know, like what percentage of the overall workforce is represented by a union and then um, the stagnation of wages. Like that is, an abund that is a proven correlation starting in the late 70s up until today. Um, so the decline in unionization is a very significant factor and how we've gotten to where we are today. But it's not just about the wages, just like Rachel said, 
by eroding union power. And when I say eroding union power, that means eroding working people's power. Unions are people. Unions are representation, representatives of workers. So when fewer and fewer people have access to an institution that can advocate on their behalf, we see what we saw happen, what we continue to see happening is that corporations have unchecked ability to rig the rules of our system. And so we saw things and continue seeing things like introducing more and more regressive policies against workers. So we have drastically increased surveillance on workers. We also have all of these right to work laws in half the country. And then we have on top of all of those things, rigging rules around corporate consolidation and power. And so now when a worker needs to, to make a grievance or try to make a change on the job, they're not working with Rick. They're not working with someone they have access to, to make changes on the quality of work. They're talking about an enormous mega corporation that has density in the entire industry. So for example, and I can talk more about this later, but if you're a meat processing worker and you're worried about line speeds and you know that if we slow down line speeds, we can socially distance and we'll get injured less, you can't just go to your plant manager. You can't just come together with your whole plant of coworkers and go to your plant manager and make that change because the industry is too consolidated by just a handful of employers who set the rules. So a hand, so your entire plant is just one fraction of the overall corporate structure. These are all things that have come about because workers' voice has eroded, both on the Hill with our lawmakers and face-to-face -face with corporations. And so they've been able to continue making rules that further imbalance the system and make it harder and harder for workers to make gains. Uh, sounds like there's a, a real power imbalance between large employers and workers, um, and one that also puts smaller business owners and, and some of the business owners who are doing the right thing in a, a more difficult place. Um, and we're gonna transition a bit into the next phase of our conversation uh, where we talk more about some of the, the power imbalances and inequalities, uh, drawing on some of what Alex shared in, in his introductory remarks, um, how the, you know, that vision of the quote unquote American dream that the first clip showed us wasn't ever accessible for large portions of workers in this country. Um, so we're gonna watch a, another clip that looks at one particular sector of work, care work, um, and follows a, a domestic worker, Adelaide Tembe. Um, she makes an average of, of about $120 per house that she cleans. Um, talking a bit about her experiences in, in the labor market uh, with some, some insights from Palak Shah, who's the social innovations director of National Domestic Workers Alliance to put Adelaide's experiences in context, uh, and then we'll we'll have a conversation with with our panelists about some of the the inequalities and differences across our labor market today. The fastest growing sector of the low income economy is domestic work, cleaning, and home child and health care. I clean two houses a day. Sometimes one, sometimes three. Sometimes I do small jobs beside the cleaning just to survive, you know. My name is Adelaide Tembam. I came to America in 2008 from Mozambique and I'm house cleaning. Like Tembe, 
Many domestic workers are immigrants and people of color. They are often underpaid and have little or no job security. The domestic workers are mostly women who work in our home. They are nannies, they are cleaners, caretakers, caregivers, therapists, cooks, all in one. Because we often say domestic workers do the work that makes all other work possible. There are two and a half million domestic workers in America. By 2030, that number is expected to double. As the U.S. population ages, domestic and in-home healthcare are forecast as areas of job growth. For many who lose their employment to automation and outsourcing, domestic work may be their most viable option. Domestic work is, in many ways, the future of the economy. These are the jobs that are coming, and these are the jobs that are here to stay. So as, as Palak said, the, the future of work in many ways is care work and domestic work. These are jobs that have incredibly fast growth rates. Uh, home health aides are predicted to be the largest occupation within 10 years. Uh, you know, half of the fastest growing jobs are in the care sector and tend to be low paid and held disproportionately by women and especially women of color. Uh, so this next phase of the conversation is, is going to look at some of the inequalities that have long characterized our, our labor market and without intervention are poised to continue to really shape who has access to what types of jobs. Uh, so, so by means of an, an opening question here, uh, I'd like to think about how, what impact is has the pandemic had on job quality? Um, and I'll, I'll again turn to, to Rachel first here. Uh, and if you could share a bit about how this focus on essential work that we keep hearing about uh, in, in a lot of media coverage, in headlines and conversation, um, you know, what did the pandemic expose about how society values different types of work? Sounds like Rachel is having some tech problems. Hey, can you hear me now? Yes. Sorry about that. Someone had to mute. It wouldn't be um, a virtual conversation without that. <laughs> so I want to start with the value of essential workers and um, what may end up being one of the strange silver linings of the brutal um, past year and a half. And that is the appreciation for the people who are doing jobs like caring for the elderly, delivering packages, ensuring grocery store shelves are stocked. There is a different level of awareness that so many people, including many of our business and government leaders have that what stood between our families and our communities and full scale social collapse, where people often making $7.25 to $15 an hour, um, in fact, 47% of people who work in jobs that were deemed essential, um, so they were technically classified as essential to the continued functioning of our infrastructure and our economy during this crisis, 47% of those jobs 
pay less than $15 an hour. So we have this strange oxymoron where you're so essential to the success and thriving of our economy and our society, yet you're low wage. And actually the contradiction gets even more wild because you can be essential, low wage, and low skill in terms of how you're classified in the government's labor data. Um, I did a little bit of digging. There's a fantastic um, teaching note from MIT that just came out about this. I'll tweet it after the panel. And it unpacks the history of this low skill classification. Why are we naming work that is so critical to our infrastructure low skill? And in fact, there's government records that show when this category was created in government data. A lot of it had to do with what are the jobs performed by young people, women, and people of color. So that was the direction of it. It was starting with the jobs done by people who are women, people of color, or young, and classifying that work as young skill. So these understandings and this devaluing of certain types of people and the work that they do, that has really carried forward into the present. But I do want to end on a positive note, which is this silver lining of really focusing on essential workers. We heard you know, our neighbors banging their pots and pans uh, at 7 p.m. We saw signs thanking essential workers. So my hope and where I think there's a huge opportunity is to ensure that that appreciation leads to greater opportunity, greater rights, greater protection for this part of our workforce who certainly was and always has been essential. Yeah, I'm reminded of, of Rick's comments in, in the last section uh, about, you know, we face challenges and then have choices to make about what, what to do in the face of those challenges. And, you know, we've all faced continually mounting challenges over the past year. And there is this, this moment of, of choices and of opportunities. Uh, things could go one way or, or they could go another. Um, and in our, in our next section of, of this conversation, we will look towards some of those more promising solutions. Uh, but, but for now, I'd like to turn it over to Alex to talk a bit more about the, the inequalities of the impacts of the pandemic and of some of the, the labor market related challenges. Uh, so, so based on some of the work that the Joint Center has done, can you tell us a bit about how black workers have fared during, during the last year and a half? Sure, I can. And I, before I do that, I want to uh, just note that um, during the Great Recession, my mother uh, had worked as a registered nurse for about 15 years, and she only had an associate's degree. And there was an interesting pivot in the labor market to where re registered nurses were suddenly required to have a bachelor's degree in order to compete in the labor market. But um, this is in the South, and she lost her job as a result of a hospital closure uh, eventually tied to the lack of Medicaid expansion in the state of Alabama and uh, turned to home health work in order to continue to put food on the table to support our family. And if you're familiar with uh, home health work, it is, is not a, uh, a, a very kind uh, occupation to folks who endure it, um, but it was one that my mother was, was prepared for and passionate about carrying out but the quality of that work is horrendous, especially linking that work into the wages and the quality of the job to low Medicaid reimbursement in a state without expansion. 
um, and having no additional resources to transport transport yourself from one location to another to care for patients. And uh, it is it is truly um, a, a hostile occupation in, in many ways as well because of that. So uh, just wanted to make a note because I, I did feel for um, what was said in terms of, you know, who our essential workers are now and how we've, you know, characterized them as an important uh, part of our economy that kept kind of the, the engines running whenever we slowed down. But historically, uh, we have put in place or failed really to acknowledge um, their, their value in our, in, our, in our lives. And I fear that by the time March 2020 came around, it was too late, right, to recognize folks as essential. Um, but I'm, hope, I'm cautiously optimistic that um, we are getting to a place, and I, I agree, I think that in the discourse, um, essential work is uh, reaching a new value, and it's starting to carry into some of the really promising you know, policy changes that we've seen through recovery legislation um, that I'm particularly excited about. But I digress. Um, uh, I, I'm going way off. Um, you know, one of the uh, things I wanted to note here uh, and what we've been caring a lot about at the Joint Center um, to, to, I think, frame it up. I'll steal a quote from a friend and, and colleague, Dr. Valerie Wilson at the Economic Policy Institute, who uh, wrote last year that Black workers face two of the most lethal pre-existing uh, conditions in this nation. Uh, during the pandemic, and it's racial inequality and economic inequality. And we have seen that explode over the course of the last year. Uh, we know that whenever the pandemic hit, because of the overrepresentation of Black workers in frontline industries and in essential work, uh, there was a disproportionate, uh, 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 I guess, disproportionate amount of folks of color particularly Black folks and women, were uh, represented in our unemployment figures. And that has remained uh, the case up until now. Um, and even, uh, but even with that recognition, uh, what we've got to also recognize is leading up to the pandemic, there were uh, disproportionate shares of Black workers in unemployment numbers um, that were not addressed. We were facing or experiencing the greatest economic expansion in the recent history of our nation up until March 2020 with low unemployment rates um, and some uh, modest er uh, income and earnings increases, depending on where you lived in this nation and what industries you, you worked in. Um, but unemployment and, and labor force detachment for black workers was always two to three times higher uh, than it is for, for white workers. And now that we are, um, facing a recovery, which is hard to grapple with, given the increase in cases and new variants and all of these other things, um, we're seeing a, a return to the pre-pandemic uh, labor market figures, uh, which for at an aggregate level without disaggregating the data by race seems encouraging. But when you do, you realize, okay, we're back to March 2020, where black folks are uh, two times or three times more likely to be unemployed than white workers in the economy. So I think that is uh, something that is uh, keeping, certainly keeping me up at night um, and is justification for continuing to support uh, recovery or relief for these workers. But, you know, to put it in the context of job quality, whenever I live in Georgia, uh, the Joint Center is based in DC, I live in Georgia. 
um, I mentioned that Black workers were overrepresented in the essential workforce. Uh, Georgia reopened and went back to business as usual one month after the shutdown. We became one of the first states to reopen. And in that, uh, in that reopening, Black workers uh, in droves had to return back into jobs that were high risk for exposure to the virus, that um, were not subject to uh, restrictions and protections offered through OSHA, through occupational uh, safety uh, uh, rules and regs, and have labored in those jobs um, as long as they could throughout the course of this pandemic and are continuing to do so. Um, so I just wanted to speak to that policy choice that was made and how it has really contributed to the worsening of the job quality for those workers over the course of the pandemic. And when it comes to the question of why are people, you know, not returning to work or uh, not wanting to uh, uh, transition off of unemployment insurance, I, I, I think, you know, we've got to focus on the fact that we forced folks back into into a harmful environment um, that has unfortunately been uh, costly, but also deadly disproportionately for Black workers. Um, so the, the link between job quality and just quality of life and health is particularly uh, pervasive for, for Black workers. Um, and that is something that we're continuing to keep an eye on and is troubling um, as we force our way back to uh, normal. Thank you. Thank you for, for those insights uh, and the, the ways that occupational segregation really defines our labor market and the ways in which certain workers are concentrated in more dangerous jobs, in low wage jobs, in jobs which are called low skill sometimes, despite the huge amount of skill and a bet that those jobs take. Uh, all of those things reflect how questions of, of improving job quality are questions of racial justice. You know, as we work towards racial justice in this country, we need to address the job quality and occupational segregation questions head on. Uh, and, and as a, a next step in, in doing that in this conversation, uh, building off of what, what Rachel pointed to in terms of, you know, having, having a moment of potential change, um, growing recognition of some of the needs um, and challenges and hypocrisies that, that we have today, how to, to build on that, how to move forward. Um, that's, that's where we're headed in, in this last, last section of, of our conversation today. Uh, and so I'd like to start with uh, Rick. Um, you, know, you, you outlined some of the practices that you've adopted uh, in, in your business at Optimax to, to try to provide quality jobs and, and jobs with paths to opportunity in your community. Uh, but, but if you could tell us just a little bit more about you know, what are some of the practices you've adopted and how, how do you see those playing out? So at Optimax, um, and, and I think this is true whatever industry you're in, workforce development uh, can be an issue uh, in the community. So we, we realize that we need to talk to children and get them excited about learning get them excited about math and science that, because that's our industry. That's the basis of, you know, our knowledge base. And um, so we, we do a lot with uh, creating summer programs, summer camps for kids, um, offering tours in local factories. And then as they get into their teen years, uh, offering internships at the factories where they can do job shadowing or a paid internship. 
to see if they like the type of work that we do. Um, and for some people, it, it, they love it and they get hooked on it. Other people find another path and that's just fine. Um, but I think one of the things that's really important is that we create stackable credentials so that as people are going through life, um, you know, as was said earlier, they're probably going to be changing jobs several times, but with stackable credentials, they can move through life and, and have the ability to pivot to other roles. I like to think of uh, our employees or our team members as members of a, a sports team where every year they should be learning how, more about their role how to do it better than they did the year before, or cross-training to learn about roles that are similar but different than the one that they're playing. And so lifelong learning is, is a key uh, way that we strengthen our team at Optimax. Everyone has a learning plan each year. And for that, um, you know, we, we make sure that we're, we're sharing the wealth with our employees. Um, one of the unique benefits we have, and this, this is something that I think is true in any industry or any organization, early years of employment, when people are young adults, their, their pay scales tend to increase at a pretty good pace each year, but then they plateau after 20 or 25 years, they're maybe getting cost of living increases, maybe not getting increases at all. And what's really unfortunate about that is those people are our core team. Those are the people that have been with us for a long time. And they've ha had a lot of experiences, good and bad through the years. And so at Optimax, we created a 25th anniversary gift where we give um, an individual a block of phantom stock options. And it's an internal calculation on the value. But the point is they get a block of phantom stock options that will fully vest over five years. So it's a way to put a little giddy up in their step and encourage them to leverage their know-how and their experience to teach the younger people in the organization and help grow the industry, grow the grow the business and serve our customers better. And uh, there's just a couple uh, examples. Yeah, there, there are examples of different ways that employers can invest in their workers and in so doing provide quality jobs, uh, whether that's investment in terms of, of training and, and training pathways uh, and, and investment in, in wages, in equity, in other ways of, of you know, compensating, compensating workers. Um, so, so thanks for sharing some of, some of your practices. Uh, I'd like to, to ask Alex if if he could speak a bit about some of the, the policy approaches that hold promise. You know, what can our policymakers do, whether at the, the local, state, or federal level, to, to address the job quality challenges? Thanks for that question. Um, so we are dealing in matters of addressing uh, racial equity, right? And in, in racial justice is, uh, you know, central to our focus and work at, at uh, the Joint Center. And um, what we recognize is that a lot of the, uh, the conditions that define kind of work for black workers are tied to actual public policy choices or tied to um, some explicitly uh, racist policy choices that have just persisted over time and may be race neutral today, but certainly we're not whenever they were put on the books. So, for instance, um, I appreciate Nafisa lifting up right to work. That was a very explicitly racist law um, that was designed by Vance Muse and even uh, in part in collaboration with uh, Southern governors and others 
across the South to stoke fears about collective bargaining between black and white workers um, and, and, and disrupt solidarity um, here. And since then, uh, right to work has been linked directly to uh, eroding bargaining power um, uh, across the workforce, across the country, um, and has impeded uh, progress in terms of wage growth, in terms of uh, access to health care, paid leave, and other matters, uh, similar, similar benefits. When we know that collective bargaining, like was mentioned already before, does lead to boosts in those in those particular um, areas. So that's one uh, that I think, and I know there is a federal bill uh, that is uh, addressing or seeks to address that. Um, another uh, is for me as a former state level advocate, uh, the matter of preemption is one of the most egregious forms of uh, job quality, anti-job quality uh, laws that exist. Um, for those who are unfamiliar with preemption, it is essentially the state telling local governments that they cannot uh, mandate paid leave laws, they can't mandate minimum wage laws, they can't uh, establish flexible uh, scheduling or predictive scheduling laws within their jurisdictions, um, which is a uh, assault on predominantly urban and black communities. In fact, it was a direct response to the growth of um, urban areas across the South uh, preemption. So uh, Georgia, where I live, is is home to all of those forms of preemption. Uh, and we're not the only state dealing with it. Um, a lot of uh, states uh, still preempt a lot of these uh, provisions for workers. Um, and I just think that we need to join campaigns like JWJ and, and others to help uh, get those things repealed. And then the last one I want to mention is the role of economic development and job quality. So, uh, you know, since the mid 20th century, globalization and like economic growth imperatives have driven so much of our output uh, work here in, in the productivity that Nafisha mentioned earlier um, and has also eroded job quality because we have not held um, employers and corporations who receive uh, taxpayer incentives to actually establish and expand their businesses in our in our communities, in our neighborhoods. Um, uh, those rarely, if ever, go evaluated and reviewed um, for uh, in, in or tied to accountability metrics. So it's beyond time to you know hold folks accountable for creating jobs in our communities that are not good jobs. Um, I have a long list uh, <laughs> of things, but I will just leave it at those three uh, for now. Great, thank you so much. Uh, and, and now I'm going to ask Nafisa and Rachel to each speak briefly to the same question, uh, which is to, to share with us some of the ways that, that workers are organizing for change and, and leading, leading the movement towards improved jobs. Uh, so Nafisa, I'll start with you. I just, I'm so excited to go after Alex. He's, he hit so many points for me. Thank you. You're awesome. We should be friends. Um, workers are in motion all the time. So I just want to be clear that um, workers are demanding the right stuff all the time um, from the right people. And the difference, like Rachel mentioned, the difference of the moment now is that people are paying attention but workers are also seeing at the exact same time as they're getting a lot of attention, a lot of applause, those things aren't translating directly to actual gains, protection, safety, and actually just general respect on the job. And that's actually emboldened workers further to see, okay, no one's going to do it for us. 
it's not it's not just going to happen from visibility we need to take action and it's been amazing the types of things workers have fought and won but i'll just say anything almost anything that you can win um legislatively you can also demand of your employer so i'll just one of the things i'll name because i think it's just such an urgent thing in this moment is paid sick time so you know i don't know about all of you in the audience or on the panel but i took two days off when i got vaccinated i was paid for those two days i took the time in case i had a reaction and didn't feel great um so how is a meat processing worker who if you take one day off of work so not paid, first of all, so you already forego a paycheck. But then you also get fired if you miss two days, <laughs> like you, you lose your job. How is that person going to take the time to go get vaccinated and then slow the spread of this disease? And, you know, like I already said, it's very difficult to win these things from the corporations because you have a plant manager and then that plant manager has a regional manager and a regional manager has, you know, like the system is so consolidated and so big that we need there. This is why the policy and the corporate demands work hand in hand. We need things to legislate sick leave. But at the same time, you can just say, hey, Tyson, you should probably have paid sick leave for your workers. They can do that tomorrow. They don't need anybody's permission and they don't, they're not preempted by Georgia law and they're not, you know, like they can do it tomorrow. So this is kind of the beauty of the way Jobs with Justice campaigns is to combine the accountability to finally get towards change. And workers have been doing that. So all I'll say about that is like, you know, workers have been campaigning about sick leave for probably two decades. The consequences of not listening have gotten a lot more dire as I just illustrated. But workers have been campaigning about the right things for the rights for for a long time, targeting the right people, right decision makers. And that's actually no different today than it was prior to the pandemic. And Rachel. I really see this as our once in 100 years moment. Um, for me, I think about my family. So on one side of the New Deal era in the 1930s, we were Jewish refugees who lived in poverty and had never had any formal education, had no literacy. On the other side of the New Deal era, after a huge range of policies, of organizing, of business action, our family was solidly middle class and basically has been since then. This can be that moment for so many other families and we can do a more sort of centered on equity, justice-oriented version of the New Deal. So what that means, you know, for government, we have what will ultimately be trillions of dollars flowing. Let's ensure that all of those dollars, when they go out in grants and contracts, let's make sure that they deliver the types of jobs that sustain and uplift families and communities. For employers, they are increasingly seeing the connection between long-term business, business success, operational resilience, even profitability with um, the financial wellness and um, well-being of their workforce. I you know, could shout out a number of employers that are working with partners like Just Capital and the Good Jobs Institute to make those connections. Um, and then finally, I'd point to philanthropy, right? I run a new donor collaborative. We are born in this moment and we are here to be a surge vehicle for philanthropy to really make sure that on the other side of this pandemic, 
we see economy that is significantly more equitable. Thank you. And we're going to transition to some of our audience questions, which actually are a, a great follow up to some of the ideas that that you all have shared already. Um, so so coming from audience member Debbie, uh, what are some of the ways that consumers can help build equity by choosing where to spend their money and time and resources? Um, how can you find out which businesses or services, you know, pay a living wage or, or have good job quality uh, practices? I can go if nobody's going to take the bait. Okay. Please. Um, so here's the challenge. Um, here's the challenge with corporate consolidation is that we have a kind of illusion of choice when in reality, most of our choices are um, owned by the same folks. So I'll just say I live in Portland, Oregon, and um, the Nabisco workers are on strike. Uh, they started a strike a few weeks ago, and now it's gone national. Nabisco is, so they, this plant produces Oreos. I love Oreos. I can't help it. Delicious. Um, so Oreo owned by Nabisco, Nabisco owned by Mondelez. Mondelez also owns everything. Wheat Thins, Triscuit, Cadbury, like the list just goes on and on and on. So the challenge with uh, trying to do the ethical consumer way is that it, it's, it gives us a kind of a false sense of inability to create change on these massive corporations. So I don't, I, I think deciding with your dollar is absolutely the right thing to do. If you know a product is ethical, you should, you should buy it. And if you love it, you should use it. Um, but using your existing power as an ongoing consumer to influence that corporation, signing petitions, letting them know that you're actually on the worker's side, that you love their product, but you love their workers more, is actually more impactful in this moment. Because they're so big, we can't actually withhold our, our, um, our capital. So like, and then with meat processing, it's the same, right? Like Tyson's customers are school districts and the federal government and blah, blah, blah. So me not buying fish sticks is really not going to be terribly impactful um, on their bottom line. I might feel a smidge better, but it won't actually drive the change. So that's my, that's my thing. I wanted to add, Thank you. Um, so I love, uh, I love the idea of the illusion of choice because that's so real, particularly in low income communities or in communities of color where you are a consumer only of the things that are oftentimes really harmful uh, and are super low, creating super low quality jobs. I mean, uh, I live in a community where, you know, some of the best or most uh, uh, grocers are the dollar stores or Dollar Trees, uh, full of food, fast food restaurants. I mean, there's they're all industries or, or, or uh, places where job quality is certainly not, uh, uh, desirable, I think. Um, so uh, I just want to, you know, to hold that, you know, consumer choice to be able to hold back, you know, is limited to folks who have, you know, proximity to certain resources um, or in certain communities. Um, and I think the bigger piece or bigger picture is how do we actually like think about it from macro level and like hold these companies accountable or the people that are giving them the resources to or an approval to locate into our community, hold them accountable um, through uh, democracy work, um, which you know, this for another uh, another session, um, so that we don't, so we can you know have products and 
access to things in our communities that are uh, suitable for our quality of life, right? That do create good jobs and, and, and such. So just wanted to add another very complicated, uh, an element that makes that, that question so much more complicated, um, but is worth um, thinking about long-term. I'll make one quick add here too, which is, you know, as the mom of a toddler, one of the changes for me is I'm now an employer, right? We, um, we may have babysitters for those of us who have aging parents, there may be um, healthcare aides that are supporting them in some way. So if you are in a situation where in the care economy, you are an employer, that is a great story for you, like powerful action as an individual. Make sure that you're offering a living wage. You can look up what that is in your area online. There's a calculator that MIT hosts. Um, make sure that you're doing fair scheduling practices. You know, find out what types of benefits really matter to your care provider um, and be the kind of great employer that we all deserve to have. Thank you. And this has transitioned into what was going to be our closing question, uh, which was to ask each of you just one action step that viewers and audiences can together as consumers, as voters, as community members, as workers, as job seekers, you know, keep it to, to a couple words at most as we're, we're running out of time, but would love to just hear from each of you, you know, what is what is one thing we can do? We can go ahead and start with Alex. Yeah, I was just going to say uh, organize, um, you know, join workers, be in solidarity uh, with them uh, in, in keeping watchful eye for exploitation. Uh, I think that you don't have to be, you know, the exploited to be in solidarity um, with folks, although under capitalism, I think we all kind of are a little bit so. Um, just if you find a pathway to organize through uh, Jobs with Justice or through other organizations in your community, um, that's one way to get involved and help accelerate some of these policy changes, which are really needed um, to move the needle on, on job quality. Great. Nafisa? Support workers in action. Um, you know, there are striking Nabisco workers. You can donate to their GoFundMe. Um, but also call your senators and tell them to pass the PRO Act. That's the federal legislation that Alex was referencing earlier that would help undo some of the right to work nonsense. That's it. Great, Rick. Yeah, I'm gonna shift that, that last question you had to, you know, instead of as a consumer, as an employee, take the opportunity to look at the options at different companies in your region and maybe even outside your region, we've learned during the pandemic, we oftentimes we don't have to live in the same city where the company is, but seek out companies that take care of their workforce, that nurture their workforce. At Optimax last year, we converted our company from uh, an S corporation to an employee ownership trust. And it's a way that in the future, all profits generated by the corporation are shared with the employees and and there's no longer investors or shareholders that take money out of the corporation. Great. Thank you all so much. We are at time. So I'd like to remind everyone that the Future of Work documentary premieres tonight on PBS at 10 p.m. Eastern time and will also be streaming on pbs.org. Also encourage you all to check out the websites of the respective organizations of our panelists for more information about the, the ideas and perspectives that they've shared today. Thank you all again for joining us and enjoy the documentary.